it's taken some time. Um, it took me time to start talking about my childhood and growing up in poverty. It took me some time to talk about other struggles that I faced, including that when I was in my 20s, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And that significantly impacted my fertility um, and was another aspect that I felt deep shame and guilt and and yet is also something that is that many women go through and also feel that shame and stigma. So it's taken me some time to find the voice that I am comfortable with, which is the voice of a physician who does public health work that's grounded in evidence and science, but that's also informed by my personal story. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And today, I'm speaking with Dr. Lena Wen. There is no face to public health. By definition, public health works when we're invisible because, by definition, you've prevented something from happening. You prevented a disease outbreak. You have prevented a shooting. You have prevented blood poisoning. There's no face of something that has been prevented that did not happen. Dr. Wynn is an emergency physician and public health leader. She's currently a visiting professor at George Washington University's School of Public Health. Considered one of Time 100's most influential people and the author of a book called When Doctors Don't Listen, Dr. Wynn advocates for improving patient care and increasing transparency in the medical field. I don't want to live in a society where geography is destiny and where the currency of inequality is years of life. And I believe that there's a lot that we can do to reverse that tide and to bend the arc of our universe back towards justice using the tools of public health. Dr. Wynn became the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood in 2018, where she worked to expand health care for vulnerable women with the goal to make women's health care less political. Women's health care is health care. That it should not be seen as something separate from the mainstream standard healthcare that it is, and that healthcare is a human right. That the more that it's associated with politics, the worse that health outcomes are going to be for women, because reproductive healthcare is going to continue to be a political football as opposed to the standard care that it is. That same year, individual states were working to limit women's access to abortion. Dr. Wynn served as Planned Parenthood's president and CEO for a little under one year. Her tenure and her departure highlight a philosophical divide, not just between Planned Parenthood and its president, but in the country, which is best articulated in Lena's own words, written in a farewell letter that she posted on Medium in July of 2019, saying that, ultimately, my departure is not about me or the organization I continue to care deeply about. It goes beyond the movement for reproductive rights to the very ethos of our country. Can we put aside partisan differences to do what is best for the people we serve? Will the conversation continue to be dominated by a vocal minority from both ends of the spectrum? Or can there be space for those of us in the middle to come together around shared values? When I spoke to Dr. Wynn, I wanted to know how this brave and bold doctor began her journey in medicine. I'll start right away by saying that, you know, you've mentioned in so many interviews, it's important for healthcare providers to stay true to their North Star 
What do you mean by that, and what is your North Star? I've always been driven by the concept of access, that everyone should have access to health care as a guaranteed human right, that it should not just be a privilege that's available to some. I grew up as an immigrant. My parents and I came to the U.S. just before I turned eight. And we lived in some very challenging neighborhoods where I saw people around me who didn't have access to health care. You grew up in L.A., right? I did, yes. We first were in Logan, Utah, and then after a couple of years moved to to L.A. And there was this one child who was just a couple of years younger than me. I think I was 10 or 11 at the time. And I remember that he had an asthma attack, and his grandmother was too afraid to call for help. And his inhaler was not working, and I was there trying to give him my inhaler. I had asthma too. And this child literally died in front of me. His grandmother and his whole family was undocumented, and they were terrified, so terrified of what would happen if they called for help that he died from lack of access. And it's an indelible memory. In that moment, do you remember being afraid or wanting to um, call 911 and being overruled? I remember thinking that I knew how I how it feels to be out of breath and to worry and and just the the fear of not knowing whether you'll be able to breathe because I had asthma too. And I knew that for me, I always went to the hospital when I had these asthma attacks. I remember um, there was another neighbor who was there too, and we were trying to get the grandmother to call, but she just said no, she said no, she said no. And I just will always remember her cries that whole night and the weeks after, after her grandson died. And that's it's that concept that's driven me throughout my career, that the North Star will always be the patients and the communities that I serve, particularly those who are the most vulnerable. You have been in positions of leadership as Baltimore City Health Commissioner, leading Planned Parenthood. How do you stay close to patients? I have this theory, and I want you to prove or disprove it, that maybe you sneak into clinics like one afternoon every other week. Well, your intuition is correct. (laughs) So my... (laughs) um, I love being right, but also I'm fascinated. Well, I have always had the dream of becoming a doctor. That's what I've always wanted to do. And I specifically wanted to be an emergency physician because I didn't want to turn any patient away because they couldn't pay for their care because of their immigration status, because of their insurance status or anything else. And so the ER was the one place that I thought I could do that. And I'm so proud of continuing to be a practicing emergency physician the entire time that I was in Baltimore leading the health department. Oh, I didn't know. Okay. Right. And when I was leading Planned Parenthood, I volunteered at a local health center, and I continue to practice medicine throughout. I have this image, and maybe it's because I binge Grey's Anatomy with my sister when Blockbuster (laughs) was still a thing, and we got like every single Grey's Anatomy DVD that was available. Um, And this image of like these hungry students 
waiting for ambulances, standing outside with their hair pulled back and their robes on, latex gloves on, like so excited to learn, so excited to to be of use. Is there something like that's like a moment for you where you're like in that groove? Of course. Of course. All the time. Um, when I'm with the patient, my heart and soul and brain and everything is with the individual who is in front of me seeking care. I've been there myself as a patient, having been ill as a child, and also as a caregiver, because I was the caregiver for my mother when she was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, in which she eventually died from about 10 years ago. And it's those moments that make my work as a physician so meaningful because it is about that personal connection with the patient and family who is putting their trust in me. I think of you almost as like the Doogie Hauser 2.0, <laughs> starting college at 13, uh, graduating um, around the age 19. Is there maybe another moment when you were young with your family or maybe with yourself out in the world that you had a love for science? Not really. <laughs> so, I mean, I my undergraduate degree is in biochemistry, and I I appreciate science. Um, <laughs> and I, I very much appreciate the scientific method and believe in evidence-based practices. But my heart is always with patients, with serving the community. But I think my background... My parents and I, again, we were immigrants, and when we came to this country, we had $40. We depended on Medicaid. I think about a lot of this now because we have the Trump administration coming out with all kinds of policies that directly target immigrants. And I think about the untenable trade-offs that my family would have had to make. I mean, at some point, my father had a hemorrhaging stomach ulcer. Would we have chosen to take him to the hospital to save his life? Or would we have said, well, this is too risky because maybe we won't be able to get our green card? Wow. And we happen to be lucky that we were granted political asylum just days before our immigration status would have run out. And we were able to stay, and I'm proud to now be a U.S. citizen. But if that had not happened, I could very well be here today as a dreamer. But for the grace of God go I, and I think that applies to so much of my value system, it's now my obligation to give back and help others to level the playing field of inequality. You said your parents received political asylum. Is this from China? That's right. My parents were dissidents in China. Um, my father in particular had um, many issues with the Chinese government. Um, and um, we were, again, very fortunate to be able to stay in this country my parents worked very hard for us. We did depend on public benefits. I went to public school throughout, including college. For us, these were not so-called entitlement. Was that something that you heard your parents talking about, about politics, whether you guys were in China or in, or in the States? Did you guys have family dinners talking about the state of the world? Look, I had a very challenging childhood. My parents worked multiple jobs just to get by. We didn't really have dinner together, <laughs> because when would they be able to be home for dinner? And so I had an understanding of the types of challenges that they faced in China, but it was not something that we talked about at the dinner table because we didn't have dinner together. 
You talk about your your mother and your experience caring for her during her illness. What were some other things about her that you like to think of, moments? What made her laugh? How did you guys like to spend time together? What was she, what was she like? My mother was an incredibly brave and hardworking woman who never complained about anything. She took care of everyone else around her. She took care of me and my sister and my father and her parents and his parents and his family and her family. And she always put herself last. She had this incredible background that she was so humble about. She grew up during the Cultural Revolution. And in China at that time, um, schools were closed. So she did not have any formal education past the fifth grade. And her mother snuck books to her that she read at candlelight, by candlelight at night, knowing that there could be consequences if she were caught reading. God, I have goosebumps as you say that, reading books at night. Can you imagine, though, that someone who never had formal education and was not even supposed to be studying past the fifth grade, that she was among the first cohort to test into college when universities open again, just by sheer force of will and herself? But, you know, there was a, a cost to putting everyone else ahead of her. Um, She knew that she was ill, but she put off going to the doctor. She put off going to the doctor because, again, she put everybody else first. And then when she did go to the doctor, the doctor said, well, I think you're just feeling run down because you work a lot. At that time, she she had become a school teacher. And the doctor said, well, maybe you have the cold or the flu, and that's why you're having trouble breathing. It took about a year before she was finally diagnosed with what turned out to be breast cancer that by then had spread to her lungs, her bones, and her brain. And I will always think about that, that you also have to put yourself first, too, and your health first, too, because now that I'm a mother myself and have a two-and-a-half-year-old and expecting another child in, um, in a month, I think a lot about my mother And how I wish that she were here. She would have loved to meet my son. I'm sure she would love to meet this new one coming. And I so wish that I still had her as a presence in my life. How do you deal with frustration or anger that can happen after that kind of health experience? And I I don't mean it so much with the system, but I mean, I've lost people and I, I deal with the grief in different ways in different days. But I have a hard time dealing with my anger specifically around it, feeling especially with something that can be avoided. I mean, you've essentially made your career talking about preventative health and you even written a book about how to encourage doctors and really our system to be set up to listen. I know that you've done a lot of things pragmatically, but what do you do emotionally to, to deal with that? Hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, Part of it is by talking to people that I love and trust. That's how I cope with things is I I talk to my husband. I talk to my close friends, um, to my trusted colleagues, to my mentors. Um, I also, you know, one of my dear mentors and 
someone who I admired so much um, is Congressman Elijah Cummings, who passed away this last year. And Congressman Cummings would say that you turn your pain into your passion. That is your purpose. Pain, passion, and purpose. That's also how I cope with the pain and anger and frustration, is knowing that my being angry and frustrated is not going to do much good, but can I translate it into something that's helpful for someone else and our system down the line? That's why with my mother's illness, I took a, a detour from what my passion in public health and health policy to work in the space of patient and family-centered care, to write this book on misdiagnoses. And, and um, I wanted to see if I could help others in a way that my mother would have wanted to. You mentioned that you have a two-and-a-half-year-old. You're currently um, pregnant with your second child. And I know, I mean, I have several friends who are doctors and nurses, and they are, I would say, maybe the worst patients in my book. They're so impatient. They don't want to rest. Um, what has it like for you to be the patient for the tables to turn? <laughs> maybe you should ask my OB that. I'm sure that you'll have a different answer. <laughs> um, I mean, it it is hard. You know, it's hard for all patients just in different ways. I think it's hard for mm -hmm. me as a medical professional because I know too much, especially coming from the emergency medicine side. Um, but, you know, during my, my first pregnancy, my first pregnancy happened to coincide with many of the efforts to strip away Medicaid and and take away protections of the Affordable Care Act. And I thought a lot about what I would do if I were in a situation where I had to choose between getting an ultrasound or paying for food for my family or going in to get blood work or paying for rent. And those are just not choices that we should make, that we should force upon anyone. Um, I also, in between the first pregnancy and in this one, I had a miscarriage. Oh, I've counseled dozens, maybe more women who have suffered miscarriages. They come to the ER with bleeding or cramping, and I diagnose the miscarriage and I've counseled them. And every time I would say to them, one in four pregnancies and in miscarriages, most likely in the first trimester, it's because of fetal anomalies that were not survivable. This is not your fault. There's nothing you could have done about it. I mean, I've said those words so many times. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you that when you're the patient, mm -hmm. And even though you know that this is what mm -hmm. actually medically is the case, it's very hard to not also think to yourself, as I did, well, what could I have done differently? What if mm -hmm. I had less stress? What if I didn't make that extra trip? And it was, I just didn't know. I had no idea about the, just the emotions that I would feel and the guilt and actually the shame that I would feel. And I ended up writing about this experience, even though I, it was such a deeply personal experience that I mm -hmm. hadn't initially intended to share with anyone. But I ended up writing about this experience because I thought, if I'm feeling this shame and guilt and I know all the reasons why I shouldn't, then so many other women must be facing it too. 
I'm struck by two things hearing you say that. The first is um, the emotional burden. I'm blown away by, and I don't know if this is something that you've had to learn, um, as a public health champion, using your own story, your own narrative to humanize and individualize uh, systemic issues with your own journey is something I can imagine is quite taxing. And I have to admit that I was really shocked that you would would share that today when especially still miscarriage is so taboo to talk about. Although I know almost every single one of my girlfriends who has a child, almost, I would say more than half of them had a miscarriage before or after. I mean, it's taken me some time to find my voice, which is ever-evolving, because when I first started in my job in Baltimore, I actually wasn't sure how much of my personal story I should share. Because coming as a clinician, working in the ER, I mean, my it's not, the interaction is not about me. I'm not here to tell the patient and relate to the patient about my story. I'm here to find out my patient's story. When I started my job in Baltimore, though, I realized that it was important to, when appropriate, to connect with the people that I serve, in part through sharing. And also that there are so many issues that are in health that are stigmatized and that are seen as being something separate from the medicine that it is. And I thought, if I cannot share those stories myself, then how can I encourage others to do the same? But it's taken some time. Um, It took me time to start talking about my childhood and growing up in poverty. It took me some time to talk about other struggles that I faced, including that when I was in my 20s, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And that significantly impacted my fertility. Um, and was another aspect that I felt deep shame and guilt and and yet is also something that is that many women go through and also feel that shame and stigma. So it's taken me some time to find the voice that I am comfortable with, which is the voice of a physician who does public health work that's grounded in evidence and science, but that's also informed by my personal story. Women's health care, I believe, is, is health care, is family care, is public health. Why does women's health continue to be such a politicized topic? Well, I appreciate the way that you framed this question. And I would ask back to you and to your listeners, would we ever have this conversation about men's health? No. I, mean, I don't know the no. last time that we that we talked about why is men's health so politicized, right? We just, we would never say that. We would never. The penis is sacred. <laughs> I mean, I, that's a joke, but I just mean that, like, it's a given that men should have health care. And there is no gray or fine line that divides Viagra from hair loss, from prostate cancer, from blood pressure for men. And yet for women, it's still a conversation piece. And I don't understand why? Well, we know that over time um, that things have gotten a little bit better, but not that much better. That women are still undervalued, and therefore our health and situations related to our health care are undervalued. 
I like how you framed it in the beginning that women's health is family health. The health of a mom, the health of a woman, is also what determines her child's health and what determines the family health and the community's health. And we need to see it that way. I think we also need to integrate reproductive health care, women's reproductive health care specifically, into the rest of health care. Because none of us go to the doctor with only one part of our body. And yet, reproductive health care is seen as something that's separate, that you go to a separate health center, separate clinic to deal with your reproductive health care as opposed to everything else. There's no reason why primary care physicians should not also be addressing every aspect of women's reproductive health care. And in the same way, if you're going to a reproductive health specialist, you should also have your blood pressure checked. If you have depression, you should also be able to have that be checked out and um, refer to treatment or get treated at that time. Because that's just good medical care, to treat the entire person. And I think that by reintegrating or integrating in the first place reproductive health care into standard health care, that that's how we will also get better care and help to remove the stigma that's around women's reproductive health care. And I hope also contribute to the understanding that none of us, women are not just our uterus, that we are the whole person, <laughs> and that women inherently have value, that our lives have value just like everyone else. Is that integration one of the reasons that you stepped into the role as as president of Planned Parenthood? Were you hoping to, was that one of your main goals was um, bringing this integration into not just discourse, but into action? It was the entire reason. My goal was to depoliticize women's health care and to unequivocally state that reproductive health care, women's health care is health care, that it should not be seen as something separate from the mainstream standard health care that it is and that health care is a human right. I believed that Planned Parenthood, as an organization that my mother, my sister, and I went to for our health care, that the more that it's associated with politics, the worse that health outcomes are going to be for women, because reproductive health care is going to continue to be a political football as opposed to the standard care that it is. And, you know, I will tell you, I am very proud of having served as the president of an organization that's meant so much to me and to one in four women in America have gotten their care in some way from Planned Parenthood. And there is so much more unmet need in this country. I mean, we have you know, millions of women living in reproductive health deserts. Women of reproductive age still have, have a, actually a declining life expectancy. We have a situation where women today, pregnant women today, are 50% more likely to die in childbirth than our mothers. That black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. I mean, there are huge disparities and bad health outcomes everywhere that we look, and there needs to be urgent attention to women's health care. Dr. Wynn served as Baltimore's health commissioner between 2014 and 2018, where she worked to integrate institutions to meet people where they are. 
She worked on an initiative that allowed children who needed reading glasses to get them directly within their public school facilities. She expanded well-baby visits for new moms and worked to treat violence and racism as public health issues. Dr. Wen tackled the opioid epidemic head-on and even wrote a blanket prescription for every single person in Baltimore to get the opioid antidote naloxone. Well, when I look back at my service in Baltimore, it was my dream job. Um, I worked with some of the most incredible, um, hardworking, dedicated people that I've ever come across who just invest everything they have in the city because this is their home. And um, and this is, you know, they live and work for their neighbors and their community. When I look at the work that we did together, probably the most important single um, area that we addressed was around the opioid epidemic. You mentioned mm-hmm. the work around naloxone or Narcan, uh, which is the opioid antidote. And we got legislation changed and then trained community health workers and frontline providers and made naloxone available to everyone in the city. I issued a blanket prescription to every single resident in our city to get naloxone. Just as a primer, what is naloxone and can anybody carry it or and, and administer it? So opioids include heroin, their prescription opioids like oxycodone, oxycontin, um, Vicodin, fentanyl is a very powerful opioid. The way that these opioids work is they bind to receptors in your brain that give you this feeling of euphoria and happiness that then cause the addiction over time. They Mm -hmm. also result in your stopping to breathe if you take too much of these opioids. And when you stop breathing, your heart will stop beating and you will die. Naloxone is an antidote. There are very few antidotes, complete antidotes, available in modern medicine. And naloxone is one of those antidotes to opioids because it binds to those receptors instead of the opioid. So somebody who is not breathing and would otherwise be dead if they got naloxone, they could be walking and talking within minutes. There are two versions, one that's given through the muscle like an EpiPen. The other Mm -hmm. version is a fluid that's squirted into the nose And in the ER, I've administered naloxone or overseen paramedics and treated patients who received naloxone hundreds of times. And I've seen how someone uh, could have their lives saved as soon as they get this medication. Now, that's why when I first got to Baltimore, I thought it was so important in the middle of this escalating opioid epidemic to get naloxone into everyone's hands because it should not just be that doctors can save a life. So that's why we issued the blanket prescription for naloxone. And it's easy to use, and the laws of who can carry it depends on the state. But in Baltimore, we had changed the law so that I became the prescriber for every resident in the city, that they could get naloxone and carry it with them to save lives. You really showed just with your own leadership how you can address a a public issue with policy and medicine. That's right. It is the combination of changing the the policy along with delivering direct services, as in if we just had a good policy but nobody knew about it, what's what's what good would it have done? <laughs> right. But we got right. the policy changed and I issued the blanket prescription. Then we made sure that every that the pharmacies all stocked 
naloxone. Um, Medicaid, um, we worked with to ensure that patients on Medicaid would get naloxone for a dollar, or or if they couldn't pay, they would get it free of charge. We got naloxone into the hands of people. We did trainings on street corners and bus shelters, wherever it is that people were. We did hot spotting to figure out where overdoses were occurring and got naloxone to these areas. And then knowing that naloxone which saves people's lives in the moment that they're overdosing, that that is just a temporary solution, we also started increasing access to treatment and started a first-of-its-kind stabilization center, which is a 24-7 ER for addiction and mental health. Because addiction should be treated as the disease that it is, not as a moral failing, not as a crime. And when I look at that work, and in the course of three years after the naloxone program, nearly 3,000 lives were saved by family members, community members, and friends. And I was in the grocery store not long ago when the cashier said to me that her son is alive today because of my naloxone blanket prescription. And he's now in treatment instead wow. of overdosed and, and, and dead because of it. I mean, that's that's what working in local public health is all about. It's seeing a problem. So she recognized you. It. She did, and this is also the nature of working in local in 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 local health. That the people you're treating, the people you are impacting by your policies and services, they are your neighbors. Mm-hmm. They are people all around you, and it's just it's deeply meaningful, deeply fulfilling work. Just as working in the ER is, it's working on the front lines and treating people where they are. For you, what do you think is the biggest public health issue right now? Hmm. Well, nowadays, we we spend a lot of time trying to be perfect. And I am concerned about the political discourse in our country that you have to do everything or else don't even bother trying try to do something, which is just not is not my philosophy as a provider at all. I believe that we have to do what we can with the tools that each of us has in the way that we can right now. And actually, that ties to your question about what is the biggest issue facing public health, which I believe is indifference. I think that people just don't see public health because there is no face to public health. They don't understand that health is integral to everything. And they also see health care and not just health. Every time there's a debate, and the topic turns to healthcare. Everybody wants to talk about Medicare for all. And yes, it's an interesting topic, and we should be debating it, and we should think about how to pay for healthcare and insurance. But we're still talking about healthcare. We're not talking about health. We know that what contributes to people's overall health and well-being, only 20% of it is about the, the health care that you get from a hospital or a clinic. of it is other things. It's the air that we breathe. It's the education that we have access to. It's the poverty and the situations and the circumstances of people's lives. And I want more attention to focus on these issues because otherwise that indifference is going to continue to lead to a situation where, like in Baltimore nowadays, There's a 20-year difference in life expectancy depending on where a child happens to be born. And I don't want to live in a society where geography is destiny and where the currency of inequality is years of life. And I believe that there's a lot that we can do to reverse that tide and to 
bend the arc of our universe back towards justice using the tools of public health. I like to say we do this lightning round. Uh, we like to go light after we go deep. It's called truth or truth. Favorite medical tool? Your ear to Ooh. listen. Handwriting, important, not important. Worst handwriting in the world, so not important. <laughs> <laughs> you have an, an incredibly uh, touching love story, like a meet cute, long distance relationship. Uh, I read your New York Times um, wedding announcement. Is there something about your love story that you love? Oh, <laughs> I love the chance meeting. Although it is also terrifying to think. My, my husband and I met in a bookstore, as you know, and I, we think about, well, if my train had been delayed that morning or if he just decided <laughs> not to go to the bookstore, where would we be now? And it's, it's, it's an interesting story, but it's also kind of terrifying how much luck plays into our lives. That is such a lovely note to end on. I want to thank you for your time, for your service. And I look at your hard work and really broadening our perspective just a few degrees to see how they interconnect. And I thank you for your patience <laughs> with us. And we're very lucky to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Rose. It was a pleasure to join you. You can follow Dr. Lena Wen and her work on Twitter at Dr. Lena Wen. That's D R L E A N A W E N. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Emily Marinoff and the iHeart team, and especially Gail Reed. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at The Women Pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend or give us a review. It really helps other people find us. 